My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode 8 of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. So far in this series, we've been exploring the remarkable reign of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. We've seen him deal with disaster after disaster with his characteristic high-minded stoic resolve and forethought. But now we begin to get to the point of the narrative, where people who know a bit about Roman history point out what they view as Marcus's one horrible mistake. Today we're going to ask what Marcus could possibly have been thinking when he let a little monster like Commodus, his only surviving son, become heir to the throne. This episode is all about context, and we'll see that the question was never so cut and dried as many people want to make it out to be. I'm dividing the episode into two parts. First, we'll cover how hard pulling off a good royal succession was, and then we'll specifically explore how Marcus ended up ushering in the reign of a tyrant. Also, just a reminder that next week's episode, episode 9, will not be freely available to the public through the normal feeds and channels. Uh, episode 9 is uh, basically a rewards episode for supporters of the podcast, the people who are making this possible as a thank you. So uh, that episode, episode 9, covers Marcus's relationship, often contentious, with his lower class subjects, the plebs, um, and his embrace of the idea that even though he was financially strapped to the wars and plagues and financial turmoil and couldn't necessarily give them the uh, largesse that uh, uh, prior emperors had, he wanted to help the lives of his subjects, particularly his lower class subjects, and Marcus attempted to do that through interesting ways. One was legal reform, we'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about his relationship with slavery, which was a bedrock institution of the empire, not really something that a emperor could easily get his you know, civilization off of, but he attempted to make some interesting changes to make it a more humane institution. So that and a lot more like how, you know, the plebs thought Marcus was pretty snooty for not necessarily supporting with a great ardency the, the racing of the chariot teams or the, the slaughter of gladiators, uh, stuff like that. Also, a lot of, lot of inf interesting information that really plays into his character and is a, an integral part of this series. So uh, if you're interested in listening to that episode, you can do it at patreon.com slash the turning wheel. So if you donate $4 a month, you can get access to uh, all the bonus episodes and uh, a bunch of other cool bonuses that uh, we'll be giving out over time. So uh, thank you in advance for your support. Episode 8, Why Marcus Aurelius Didn't Murder Commodus. Part 1, The Task of Kings. Septimius Severus looked at the giant statue of the Emperor Commodus and scoffed. Adorned with a lion skin and club to ape the look of Hercules, the thing looked ridiculous. The vainglorious posturing of a man who had done nothing. Severus was pleased to see the workmen he'd ordered to take it down, wrapping it with ropes, and looked forward to seeing it on the ground. Good riddance, he muttered, and continued toward the Senate House with his large entourage following behind. He paused on the steps leading to the building to adjust his toga and took a minute to stare out at the city of Rome. 
The bloodstained path he'd taken to this spot had not been easy for the Empire, nor had been what came before. His people were just recovering from the final outbreaks of the Antonine Plague and twelve years of misrule by an immoral tyrant in his ever-shuffling cabinet of undesirables and psychophons. Severus himself had only risen to become emperor after a year-long conflict with four other imperial contenders, and looking back at the carnage he'd been forced to leave in his wake, he had no patience for those who wanted to give Marcus Aurelius any slack over his decision to let a bad seed succeed him. When he walked into the Senate House in just a moment, he would strike a far different note, of course. He'd been telling the world for months that he was actually the son of Marcus Aurelius, and strangely, this would also force him to defend the reign of Commodus, his theoretical brother. It was a brazen and unlikely story, and given the hatred the Senate had come to feel for Commodus, one that was unlikely to be popular. But it was one the Senate would officially endorse, Severus was sure. He didn't intend to give them any choice in the matter. But whatever public face he had to put on things, in private he was clear. Marcus, for all of his virtues and many accomplishments, had failed Rome in one overwhelming respect. He hadn't had his son quietly done away with after it became clear just how far from the tree the apple had fallen. The Roman historian Cassius Dio tells us that not only did he privately disparage Marcus for not killing off Commodus, but he actually threatened his own son with the same treatment if he didn't shape up. So it's incredibly ironic, then, that Severus, known as a ruthless, pragmatic, and successful emperor, botched his own succession just as badly and failed to do away with his own troublesome progeny. Hindsight, as they say, is 2020, and Marcus's embrace of his son's path to soul rule was never the definite thing that many want to make it. If we're going to explore the factors that led Marcus to designate Commodus as heir to the throne, we need to first explore just how nearly impossible managing a good royal succession was and how unusual it was for it to go really well for all parties. A king could plan all he liked, but luck played a far larger role in ensuring a good succession than anything else. So here's the playbook when you're looking to sire a royal heir. First, you have to start young. The child mortality rate was obscenely high, and even healthy noble adults with all the advantages money could buy regularly succumbed to disease, assassination, or death through warfare. So if you wanted to have an heir ready when you kicked the bucket yourself, which might, after all, not be that far off from your coronation, you'd better find a wife and start popping out progeny quickly, Ideally, you'd do this before you actually became king. Since women weren't considered appropriate rulers in most countries through most spans of history, every daughter you had before your wife gave birth to a son was a wasted pregnancy and therefore a waste of your wife's limited fertility. Since women regularly died in childbirth, every time she got pregnant, pregnant there was a reasonable chance that she wouldn't live to do it again. Now, many Roman emperors died childless. Sometimes this was the result of having all their children precede them into the grave. Sometimes it was the end result of a less than ardent passion for their wives or a preference for men. But often, even highly fertile relationships failed to get their male children across the finish line and into adulthood. 
It goes without saying that even if you sired a son and he lived to reach maturity, he might be a total incompetent or a psychopath. The number of boys raised in the shadow of kings that turned out poorly is astonishing. History is littered with examples. But let's say you succeed beyond your wildest dreams. You not only produce a healthy son early in your life who lives to reach adulthood, but he's the type of rock star heir that kings dream of. Let's take Philip of Macedonia as an example, because Marcus drew on the comparison himself in the last days of his life, according to the Augustan history. Philip first married at 23 and had several daughters from three different wives before he married Olympias. When Philip was 26, Olympias bore him a son, Alexander, who would become known as Alexander the Great. As the boy grew, Philip got Alexander the best teacher's money could buy. Aristotle tutored the boy until the age of 16. That year, Philip, recognizing Alexander's intelligence and talent, started giving him major responsibilities. While Philip was on campaign, he left Alexander as his regent. Tribal uprising occurred in the north, and 16-year-old Alexander gathered up local forces himself and crushed the rebel army, even founding a city in the conquered territory in his spare time. Philip took advantage of his impressive son, giving him more and more tasks as he took on grander projects and military campaigns himself. But here we run into the old dilemma. Philip was only 42 when Alexander was 16, and still healthy, driven, and energetic by all accounts. Before long, the two started to clash. Alexander was ambitious and unhappy about having to wait so long to inherit, but Philip had no intention of ceding power just as Macedonia was on the ascendant. Philip went on to marry more women and tried producing younger heirs who might threaten Alexander's succession. The two quarreled in a drunken rage, and Alexander stormed off to take refuge in the court of another king. They had a tentative reconciliation, but the conflict had no real solution outside the death of Philip, and their relationship remained frosty. Not long after, Philip was assassinated, letting Alexander succeed at the age of 20. Had this not happened, though, coexistence for the two men would have been challenging. So if you start producing heirs too late, you might not have one old enough to succeed you when you die, and someone else will seize the throne. If you start too young and really knock it out of the park, you might have your heir chomping at the bit and trying to succeed you while you're still young and perfectly happy to keep ruling. Similarly, if you have too few sons, none might survive, but what if you have too many? Septimius Severus, the emperor who criticized Marcus Aurelius for not killing Commodus, didn't exactly perfect the art of succession himself. He decided to follow Marcus's lead with the dual emperor's idea. His two sons succeeded him as co-emperors after he died, but they both loathed each other. The elder one, Caracalla, was something of a dominant brute and was supposed to lead the army while Geta, the younger and more philosophical son, was supposed to administer the empire from Rome. Soon, they were at each other's throats, though, and they divided the imperial palace in two, ruling from their rival corners. Eventually, Caracalla had Geta murdered, but not before Rome had broken into factions. After Geta's murder, Caracalla killed thousands of those who had supported his brother. The rest of his reign wasn't much better. And what if a king has no surviving sons and has to choose someone else? 
Well, sometimes, as we saw with the five good emperors up to Marcus, it's possible to pick someone with the talent, morality, and drive to do a good job. But often, as we'll see, it's hard to ascertain if your choice will be a good one. Rarely do we see the animosity and infighting successions could bring out in a royal family laid so bare as we do with this example from the early Hittite civilization. King Hattusili, a successful monarch who expanded his empire in every direction, ran into succession problems when his designated heir, his nephew Labarna, turned out to be something of a, well, maybe a little bit of a commodus, actually. On his deathbed, Hattusili issued a proclamation to his soldiers and officials to change his heir to his grandson, Mursili, and he explained his reasoning. Quote, I designated the young Labarna to you. He shall sit securely on the throne. I, the king, had named him my son. I continually instructed him and looked after him constantly. But he showed himself a youth not fit to be seen. He didn't shed tears. He didn't show mercy. He was cold. He was heartless. I, the king, apprehended him and had him brought to my couch. What is this? No one will ever again raise his sister's child. But he didn't accept the word of the king. He always took the advice of his mother, that snake. His brothers and sisters continually sent treacherous words to him, and he consistently listened to those words. I, the king, heard of this, and I indeed quarreled with him. But enough, I said. He is no longer my son. Whereupon his mother bellowed like an ox. They have torn my bull calf from my living womb, as if I were a cow, and they have disposed him. And now you will kill him? But have I, the king, done him any evil? Haven't I elevated him to the priesthood? I have always singled him out for goodness and kindness, yet he showed no sympathy when commanded by the king. How can he then show sympathy toward Hattusa, the Hittite capital, by the way? His mother is a snake. Henceforth, he will always heed only the words of his mother and his brothers and sisters, and when he draws near, it will be to take vengeance that he approaches. And concerning my troops, by my dignitaries and my subjects who surround the king, he will vow they will be massacred on account of the king. So he will proceed to destroy them. He will begin to shed blood and will have no fear. End quote. So Hattusili may have been on his deathbed, but he knew the worth of a man. No surviving sources tell us what happened to Labarna, but Mursili went on to have a successful reign well into adulthood. But in the quest for his own heir, Mursili made his own mistake, marrying into a family that could not be trusted. Eventually, his brother-in-law assassinated him and took the throne, destabilizing the kingdom and causing the loss of much of what Hattusili and Mursili had accomplished. Many other monarchs have thought they knew what makes a good heir, but they were often wrong. For the sin of preferring music, literature, and French culture over his father's militarism, and because he was a homosexual, Frederick II of Prussia was frequently beaten and humiliated by his father, and had a good friend decapitated in front of him as punishment for his attempt to flee his father's cruelty. But Frederick is known today as Frederick the Great, and not only did he excel in war on a scale that would have made his father envious, but also made Prussia one of the preeminent states of Europe. 
Queen Victoria of England was also disappointed with her son, the future Edward VII. He often defied her wishes and regularly slept with prostitutes, which scandalized the famously prudish queen. She excluded him from all government business while she lived, but Edward went on to be a very well-regarded monarch, not just in his own kingdom, but around the world. The Emperor Claudius had a stutter and a limp and was widely considered to be a disappointment by his family and too much of an idiot to ever become emperor. It was only the unlikeliness of his ascent that protected him while the more promising members of his family were killed off by the emperors Tiberius and Caligula. But as one of the few with a link to Augustus left standing after, after the death of Caligula, Claudius did take the throne. Although far from perfect, he went on to be the best emperor since Augustus, proving his doubters wrong. Unfortunately, he also totally botched his succession, leaving a monster to follow him in the form of Nero. As you can see, planning your succession was never easy, whether you were judging your own progeny or picking someone from among the best in the kingdom. But what if there was a better way? Part 2. The Best Laid Plans of Mice and Men Marcus's approach to his succession was actually something of an attempt at a revolution, and it was probably a problem he had given a great deal of thought to, as it was the first time anything like it had been done in Roman history. Defying all convention, Marcus started off his reign by insisting that the Senate not merely appoint him emperor, but that they also appoint Lucius Verus, his brother by adoption, as his co-emperor. This was the first time that Rome had ever had two emperors reigning at once, though Marcus was considered the senior partner. Given that Varus was nine years younger than Marcus and much more physically robust, Marcus's assumption must have been that Lucius would eventually succeed him. Additionally, Marcus married his daughter Lucilla to Varus, so any children they would have would be Marcus's grandchildren and also potential heirs of his line. Marcus had clearly hoped that Varus would grow into a responsible man when he gave him a supervisory role over the Eastern Parthian campaign, but he largely failed to show any initiative of his own, rarely stirring himself from his luxurious living situation in Antioch except to occasionally review some troops from horseback. While he may have adored parties, gambling, and pretty women far more than the affairs of state that Marcus slaved over, he was also a good man in a way Commodus never would be. He took orders from Marcus willingly and was smart enough to lean on competent, driven men to take the burden of ruling from him rather than relying on corrupt psychophants as Commodus would eventually do. Lucius Verus was never going to live up to Marcus's record had he succeeded him, but he likely could have continued to lean on the same cabinet of intelligent men that Marcus had, surrounding, had surrounded himself with, and his reign would probably not have been a disaster. In his notebook, Meditations, Marcus wrote of his appreciation for Varus. That seems almost out of step with what historians have told us we should expect. Lucius, Marcus writes, was, quote, a brother whose natural abilities were a standing challenge to my own self-discipline, provoking me to improve my character, in whose love and affection moved my heart and enriched my life, unquote. Now, there are several ways this could be read. Marcus regularly wrote that he should accept people's flaws and embrace their strengths and tap people to serve the state in functions they were suited for without wishing them to be different. 
This assessment might simply be him looking on the bright side of a man who he found useless as co-emperor, but at the least, it's probably fair to say that Marcus liked Lucius and appreciated him as a man on some levels. He may well have felt comfortable entrusting the empire to him, whatever his faults. But Marcus himself also continued to sire children throughout his life. All told, his wife Faustina bore him 15 children, though most died before reaching adulthood. Commodus was five when Marcus appointed him Caesar, or heir to the throne, along with his younger brother, Marcus Aeneas Verus. So by 166 AD, when Marcus was 45 years old, he had three heirs lined up to succeed him, and potentially quite a few more when you consider that Lucius was expected to have his own children. Lucius Verus went on to have a son and two daughters with Lucilla, Marcus's daughter, but all three died young. While accompanying Marcus north in an attempt to throw back the Germanic tribes that were ravaging northern Italy and the Danubian provinces, Verus fell ill and died, perhaps killed by the Antonine Plague that was claiming huge swaths of the population. Marcus's youngest son, Marcus Aeneas Verus, died during an attempt to remove a tumor from behind his ear in the same year. So by 169, Marcus had gone from having three heirs lined up, with more potentially on the way, to just having Commodus in little future likelihood of producing more. When he'd appointed the five-year-old Caesar a few years prior, his character had been not readily apparent, and his ascension had probably seemed no more probable than that of Lucius Verus and his potential children, or Marcus's younger son. But suddenly, Commodus was the only option. But did Marcus know by 169 that Commodus was a bad seed? According to Marcus's biographer, Frank McLinn, Commodus's base character was, quote, already evident and had been since childhood. From the earliest years, he had appeared naturally cruel and dishonorable, and to these vices he added a lewd, foul-mouthed, debauched character as he grew older. Those abilities he possessed seemed almost perversely the opposite of what was looked for in a putative emperor. He could dance, sing, and whistle well, could mold goblets, fight in the arena, and generally act the buffoon. Sexually precocious as early as he could was capable of intercourse, he kept an informal harem of press-ganged or dragooned women. His deep character was fully on display at the age of 12 when he found his bath too cool and ordered his bathkeeper burned alive, unquote. The bathkeeper was smuggled to safety by servants who threw an old sheepskin on the fire and convinced Commodus that the man had been thrown in. But this is surely not the type of kid you want to grow up to be emperor. It's unfortunate that the person who likely could have had the greatest positive impact on Commodus, Marcus himself, was mostly on campaign from the time the boy was eight until Commodus started attending his father in his mid-teens. Marcus may also have taken a different path if outside events hadn't forced his hand. He'd been seriously ill while fighting on the northern border, which apparently played a part in prom prompting Avidius Cassius to rebel. As part of that rebellion, Cassius had said that Commodus was too young to rule, and that in part he was stepping in to ensure that the empire wouldn't fall into bad hands. 
With his own health in question, Marcus had to immediately secure the legitimacy of his rule. The only way he could do this was to have the succession secured in the event of his death. Lucius Verus and his other male children were all dead, so the only person he could turn to was Commodus. But wait, I can hear some of you asking, why did it have to be Commodus? Didn't each of the five good emperors except Marcus choose an heir that wasn't their son? They did indeed choose heirs that were not their son, but only because they didn't have any surviving sons of their own. Instead, they mostly adopted distant male relatives. Nerva was not related to Trajan, but Trajan chose his cousin Hadrian to succeed him. Antoninus Pius was Hadrian's brother-in-law, but he was largely just a stopgap in Hadrian's mind, albeit one that ended up having a surprisingly long reign. Marcus was Hadrian's real heir, and he was the emperor's half-nephew. Antoninus was also Marcus's uncle. Now, each of these emperors made a good choice for their adoptive heirs, but they wouldn't have had the option, and likely not the inclination, had they had surviving sons. Had Marcus not chosen Commodus, he would have had an even larger problem on his hands. His fortune was now tied up with the imperial title, and removing Commodus from the succession would likely have meant disinheriting him and leaving him destitute. But that alone would have been a surmountable problem. The real issue was that a disinherited prince would be an invitation to rebellion. There were always disaffected men in the empire eager to seize power. Commodus, a man without moral or personal direction beyond the satisfaction of his appetites, would have been a perfect stooge to use as the figurehead to launch a rebellion. Had Marcus chosen to book all precedent and put aside his son, his chosen successor would have been handed a poison chalice. He would never have been secure on his throne while Commodus lived, and ultimately he probably would have had to have him killed or have a civil war at some point. So Marcus really did have an impossible decision on his hands. He either needed to make Commodus emperor, or he needed to kill him. Those were the only two viable options. It's possible that a more practical and brutal man like Septimius Severus would have ended the unpromising specimen, but given his failure to kill his own wayward son, we might doubt this. But Marcus was a good man, and he loved his children, even his wayward one. Given that his philosophy was ingrained in his character, it's probably worth asking, was allowing Commodus to become emperor really the Stoic choice? The modern conception of a lowercase s Stoic personality, someone who doesn't feel emotion and acts with brutal logic, is not at all what capital S Stoicism is about. It's more of a ridiculous caricature. The reality was that ancient Stoics emphasized love and kindness to all mankind. Marcus's Stoic philosophy and his own personal inclination made him lean more towards philostorgia, or family and human warmth, rather than the more expedient course. It was this very lack of heartlessness that doomed his countrymen to years of suffering. With the aftermath of Cassius's rebellion still in his mind, Marcus appointed Commodus his co-emperor in 176 AD, essentially giving the teenager all the powers Lucius Verus had once possessed. From this point onward, Marcus didn't have an heir that he could remove at will. He had a state-sanctioned co-emperor who was, he was more or less stuck with. 
After Cassius's rebellion, Marcus never attempted to remove Commodus, perhaps still hoping that his faults would correct themselves over time. But Marcus did make several attempts to counterbalance any negative impact his son might have. First was to ask his son-in-law, Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus, the daring commander who had distinguished himself during the Marcomannic Wars, to serve as co-emperor with Commodus. Pompeianus was cut from the same cloth as Marcus, and the two men were close. It's possible that Marcus saw Pompeianus as someone who could stand up to Commodus if he was his co-emperor. But Pompeianus declined the invitation, probably realizing that such a position would have led to conflict and probably a civil war with Commodus. Towards the end of his life, Marcus also asked his friends and members of the imperial council to look after his son and continue to advise him. According to the Augustan history, Marcus has summoned his friends to his bedside and said that he feared that Commodus would be a poor man and a worse emperor, and he was sorry to leave him behind unsupervised. He hoped that Commodus might be to him as Alexander the Great was to Philip of Macedonia. Philip was a great king who clashed with his son, but today everyone knows Alexander, the conqueror of the Persian Empire, and few have any idea who Philip was. Marcus hoped he might be equally mistaken about his son's potential. But Commodus was no Alexander, and soon most of the friends and advisors Marcus had summoned to that room would be dead. Thanks for tuning in to The Turning Wheel. Just a reminder that if you want to listen to episode 9, which will be released next week, uh, it explores Marcus's interactions with the lower class subjects, his legal reforms, and his approach to slavery. You can get that episode by becoming a supporter of the show, uh, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. Also, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, will you do me a favor? Please give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use and write a few words about why you like the show. It really helps us reach more people, and that's ultimately what's going to keep this going. Thanks, and see you soon.